0: Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent Podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of individual stories or tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali, and I'm joined by my good friend and coach Mert Ertunga. Uh, He is in Istanbul, I'm in the Boston area, one of the most memorable chapters in tennis history is coming to an end. A certain Roger Federer is ready to walk into the history books, literally, I mean, for one last time, as he plays Labor Cup this weekend in London. So a lot of memories come when we discuss a career like this, and it's not even easy to unpack because I'm sure every podcast on the planet is going to give his own verdict, we'll try our attempt. And with Mert, I have a lot of talks about not only Federer, but the men's tour uh, in the last five, six years. Some of them didn't make the podcast. Some of them were on a WhatsApp conversation, a couple of dinners. And Federer's a name that was you know, integral to some of those conversations. And today, uh, Mert will help me unpack through his vantage point. So let me give Mert the floor. Mert, how have you been? It's been a while since we talked here.
1: I know, Saki, but it feels like yesterday. Uh, and I'm delighted to be with you again on our podcast.
0: Yeah, and as a federal celebration, they've been calling, you know, millions of fans are, you know, processing it their own way. But celebration is the right word. Even though the great man is not going to retire on his own terms, his last professional set, I mean, Laver Cup is part of professional tennis, but Wimbledon set was a six-love performance against Ubi Harkach. He was clearly compromised. And now, you know, there are more reports coming out that he was. So, Mert, uh, a signature of our conversation and many on this podcast what is your first Roger Federer memory? How far does it go back, and what was your first impression when did you see him first? Or did you read about him? Uh, talk to us about Federer.
1: No, you know, Sakib, it's funny because uh, when uh, when Roger Federer first came out, for the people tend to forget this, or people didn't live through this because let's let's face it, if you're uh, unless you're in your late thirties, uh, you were you were not even a teenager when Federer first came onto the scene or when first she, when he first turned, turned pro and started playing. So uh, people who are in their twenties, do not remember the, the, you know, his beginnings, but, uh, but at first Roger Federer, the first say two or three years of his uh, career on the pro tour, he had to, he faced quite uh, high expectations. A lot of people, uh, you know, th- there was a lot expected out of him. He was considered a fairly good talent I remember as early as 2002 that he was considered one of the favorites to win, the win, to win Wimbledon. And, uh, and I know you, you and I talked about this and you, you, uh, you narrowed it down, in fact, uh, with your great memory, as always, and through some research that was confirmed that he was one of the three favorites to win Wimbledon in 2002. So a lot, and this is before he, he even uh, went to the finals or the semis of a, of a major so so expectations were high from him and and he disappointed those expectations for a little while um he did win a tournament or two here and there even a even a master series tournament but uh, when when came the big stage he crashed out early uh several times it wasn't until 2003 wimbledon that he really burst onto the scene well okay i mean he did beat sampras in that 2001 match but even after that once he beat Sampras i remember clearly people saying okay he's going to win the title and he didn't he uh, he lost the next round and um wasn't until 2003 winning wimbledon that uh, he really raised the uh, eyebrow so he didn't have this big entry as a teenager like uh, some of the other champions did before him especially uh, and um but then but then after that he goes on that incredible run 2004 to 2007 Two thousand and eight, even two thousand nine and and at that point, I think pretty much everybody on the planet turned into a Roger Federer fan for various reasons, and then uh, one of the big reasons being is that he he brought back man's tennis from the brink of uh, uh, from the brink of, dark, of of the bottom of a dark pit, and uh, you know man's tennis was um, lost at the time. Uh, there wasn't a clear rivalry at the top. gone, uh Agassi old, uh, probably in his last couple of years. And uh, there was, you know, there was a group of Spanish guys winning uh French open, but not necessarily doing well, even skipping Wimbledon. And it was just a little bit of a chaotic situation in the men's, in men's tennis, in the sense that uh, there was nothing to inspire new fans to come in and, and, and watch the, watch the game. And Federer changed all that. And, that actually personifies what uh Roger did for tennis f- the, throughout his whole career he was a trailblazer in many ways and one of the things that uh, one of the trails that he blazed was uh was uh, bringing ba- you know bringing men's tennis back to prominence i'd argue that uh he's one of the he's one of the two biggest personalities i've ever seen in men's tennis in the open era him and bjorn borg back in the uh, first golden era um, These these, these guys just uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, You go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say, hold the thought, but that was kind of rude of me, but I would like to explore this a little further. But let's go back to the early part of your answer. When we all know, right, you know, he wasn't as good as some of his rivals or even some of the other men who had preceded him, like the Sampras or the Edbergs, who were winning at a very young age. So, and I look, I learned most of my tennis listening to ESPN in US and uh, then came the Tennis Channel pretty much same time the rise of Federer you know I got Tennis Channel end of 2003 I think and Federer had won Wimbledon so the big narrative that went around through the US commentary box covering those events on both networks was you know Federer kind of had all the tools and uh, it took him a while to put the choices and the tools together that's what mainly Patrick McIndoe and a lot of these guys said the same thing and so do you believe that his game was there? It just took a longer maturation period, say, compared to a Rafa Nadal or a Boris Becker or Novak Djokovic? Do you believe in that kind of stuff? Or do you think uh, everybody matures at their own pace and these comparisons really are different trails?
1: No, I think, uh, I think it, does, it does say something. Uh, it, it does hold some value. Uh, people mature at, uh, at different stages and some people ride on confidence. You know, when, and, and they do well when they're leading the pack or as front runners, as opposed to someone who's trying to catch up with everyone else. And uh, Federer, you know, struggling in his very early years to keep up with the expectations is no different than Ivan Lendl not winning, you know, losing his first four tries at at the finals of a major or Agassi losing his first, I don't know how many tries at the finals of a major. So there are hurdles that everybody has trouble uh, jumping over. And uh, for him, it was probably, you know, winning that first slam, uh, winning that first big major was the one hurdle that he needed to, to break free. And, uh, and that's what happened at the 2003, um, Wimbledon, and you know, in two thousand two, he did he did get into top ten for the first time. But he continued his his his, uh, his troubles at the at the majors. You know, he had the he had he basically you know it always remained below expectations when time when time came in the, when time came for the majors. So that's why the two thousand three Wimbledon trophy is probably to me, it's uh, his second biggest Slam victory of his career because because it means so much more for him to win that first slam than anyone else. If you think about it in history,
0: so you know, the the, biggest Raphael,
1: the, the, uh, the 2009 French open.
0: Oh, okay. That's how you were going to say that's, 2017. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that, that's,
1: <laughs> that's his, yeah, that's his biggest in terms of the legacy of his career, you, you know, tennis wise and, uh, and everything. The fact that he won the 2009 French open stands tall as the, as the, as the, as a top priority for, for his legacy to, to to cement itself, but uh, for his for, for for the word legacy to even enter the dictionary in terms of uh, Roger Federer's career, that first uh, that first win in two thousand three, is, is the second biggest one because is is the biggest one simply because uh, the, what he did after that breakout victory at Wimbledon for the next five or six years is unprecedented and I don't think we'll ever see that kind of dominance for a a period of uh, three or four years. All
0: right so let's go back to where I interrupted you a few minutes ago about Borg and Federer being your trailblazers so are you talking about personalities who transcended tennis are you talking about the dominance Uh, what is the appeal factor here I'll let you uh, describe it to the listeners I think we kind of know where you're going but I want to explore this into depth.
1: No, I'm talking about just the number of fans worldwide, globally, that these people bring to the, to the sport. Uh, Bjorn Borg ushered in millions of fans, uh, and 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 what was funny about him is he he had a great he had great charisma without really having a personality on the court. The the guy was uh, neutral, ice ice cold on the court, never showed any positive or negative emotions, and uh, but you know his uh, the, the way he dressed and the, the way he won wimbledon five times in a row the, he did the 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 channel slam three years in a row won the french and the, and and wimbledon and his accomplishments year in year out for in in, in, a, in a period of 7 years and the way the, the way his game revolutionized men's tennis and brought in new fans and he had a certain look, you know, the bandana and the long hair, and he he was what's called a rock star, so to speak, you know, at the time. And I think he brought in to to tennis uh, millions of millions of fans. I think that's the kind of impact that Roger Federer had when when he started playing his game. The way he plays tennis is um, is so beautiful, really, you know, technique wise, and and the way he flows on the court and and um uh, and the way he can generate power without looking like he's generating that he's sitting hard and and the and the, the very then the variety of touch shots that he he had in his toolbox uh revolutionized the game at the time too and when i say he's a trailblazer you know that's kind of the beginning of of uh of him being a trailblazer and uh he he's the one who um uh, be- because of his uh personality at the time and uh because of the way he um he um he, uh, you know, behaved on the court, and uh, because of the way that he, the, the image, the class image that he that he exuded, really, at the time, at the same time as being the number one player and being dominant, and yet remained someone that everyone can relate to uh, in interviews and his, in his interactions with fans and and other journalists, I think put him apart to where he became super popular. Everybody from all all uh, all uh, uh, stratospheres. Kind of fell in love with Roger Federer, and then came along Nadal. And uh, Nadal, being a classy player, uh, personality himself in a different way, uh, just the two of them, their rivalry, once again, just brought men's tennis back to the top of the game.
0: Yeah, I'm not a, sure.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure that any of any other player in the. I mean, I, I I don't think Pete Sampras did this. As great as Pete Sampras was, I don't think he he had the impact. Uh, in terms of bringing in new fans or, or, or generating interest in tennis the way Roger Federer did. And I don't think anyone after Roger Federer had that kind of impact also. it was In fact, their, uh, Novak, in terms of Novak and Rafa, it was their rivalries with each other and with Roger that added to the, to the cake that was already being offered in the middle of the table. But Roger was the, was the one that uh, in the early 2000s put that cake you know, on the table for everyone's attention.
0: Again, uh, too, too, much to, too much to ponder here and too many options, You know, just like Federer's game, to take this conversation forward. And Matt Zemeck, you know, who's going to be, by the way, doing another podcast, which will be part two of this podcast. He'll partner with Andrew Burton right after Labor Cup and do a second Federer episode. And me and Mert are the opening act here. So, uh, Mert, Matt put out something that was echoed by Ivan Lubitsch that not only, I think, what I'm trying to do is summarise with Federer's cliches like, you know, aesthetically pleasing and beautiful tennis and the David Foster Wallace description, sometimes the fight and the winner winning nature of his tennis gets lost. I mean, not to everyone, but I think a lot of people say, oh, Federer's the most beautiful player to watch. Fine, he's been overtaken by Djokovic and Nadal, who are deserving in their own right to stand at the pedestal where they're standing. But that doesn't make Federer's tennis any less. I think sometimes people just say, oh, he's the most beautiful player to watch, but of course, Nadal and Djokovic have their own fight, and they might edge him in the mental department, but not by much. Even Novak says Federer's fight is, you know, amazing. So, do you think sometimes tennis critics and fans shortchange Federer's fight and desire to win just by hanging on to the cliches of how beautiful the forehand is, the flick of the backhand, and all that stuff?
1: So, I keep to claim that someone can win as much as Federer did and not have and lack in the fighting, you know, lack in the fighting spirit. Is quite frankly laughable. You know, I I I I hate to use that term uh, because I'm sure some people that I know even make make this argument. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're gonna, it's all relative, right? I mean, if you're going to compare him to to say it, it just in the fighting spirit or back against the wall department to Rafa, for example, yes, I would put Rafa ahead of uh, Roger in that too. But wouldn't you? I would put just about everyone against Rafael in that same department. So, you know, you cannot uh, sit there and just limit yourself to just two or three colorful, uh, emotion-provoking comparisons, and then draw larger uh, conclusions from that. Uh, you know, if for every example that uh, that that you can give or of Roger letting the match slip away, you can probably, if you look into it, you can probably give twenty examples of how Roger hung on uh you know with 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 every nail that he had to a match and then ended up winning it and um so no i i, I disagree with that i don't i don't think uh you can be you can build a career um in the sta- in the stature of uh roger Federer and lack in what is it fighting spirit is that the cliche term but uh no that's not true I i don't believe that either
0: He's, he's lost like more than a few matches from match points down. So I think that's yeah, something. Yes, yeah,
1: there's, you know. there's no doubt. In fact, he probably lost uh, in big stages some matches that he should have won. It doesn't even have to be match points, right? I mean, for example, in my opinion, the match that he lost to Juan Martin Del Potro in 2009 US Open, he should have never lost that match. He didn't have a match point either, but that match was going in a way where he should have won comfortably at two different times. And then, and then, if you want to talk about match points, I mean, you know, he lost that match against Suffin as early as 2005. He tried a twinner on a on a match point, and uh, yeah, you can go back and look at those. But uh, but then again, how many more? How many more of those? If we really wanted to dig out, how many more of those? He he also won. He also won a lot of points, a lot of matches from being down two sets to love, from being down match point, and you don't go something like what 200 some to six. Wins to sixteen losses in a matter of three or four years, in that two thousand four to two thousand seven stretch, were lacking any kind of will or fighting power. It just doesn't happen. He's he's not he's not he's he, he doesn't. I I can clearly say the sentence without any uh, any discomfort. Feder is a is, is a great fighter on the court.
0: Yeah, no point, point noted, and you know, like coming from you, kind of solidifies uh, some of these. Notions uh, notion that I've exercised but sometimes no yeah, I'm sorry
1: gonna, go no I'm sorry I'm I'm cutting you in the middle there but but uh, you know Roger has uh, the, the, Roger has also won many matches because he's got such a complete toolbox that he can throw the kitchen sink at his opponent even when he's not playing well and uh, and find a way to win i mean you know so a, a lot of times the, the 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 idea of finding a solution or, or coming up with a, with, you know, solving a problem. Well, Roger is one of the best out there, if not the best. You know, he's because he's mm-hmm. able to throw many different things at the opponent and try to, try to uh, derail the opponent's game, even when he himself is not necessarily playing very well. I, what one example that I can immediately give you is I decided 2014 or 15, I can't remember, but he defe- he defeated Stan Wawrinka in the ATP World Tour final semifinal match, and I believe he lost the first, and it was two two really close sets that he won, second and third set. And he wasn't playing very well in that match. And Wawrinka was was knocking the ball out of the ballpark uh, with his, with both of his ground strokes. And, and Federer tried drop shots, angles, slice, changing the pace, serving out wide. He threw everything but the kitchen sink and found a way to win that match even though he wasn't playing well himself. I know I, I think- kind of uh, digressed, but uh, yeah.
0: No, that's fine. That's a, kind of a meaningful digression because that put a question that was back in my queue at the forefront now with all the variety you mentioned. Look, you have played the sport professionally. You're doing – you've coached at the college level, now you're coaching at the professional level. So sometimes with all the fight and all the beauty and all these cliches that fans like me – I consider myself above average, but we haven't played the sport. So I want to ask you uh, a question that Darren Cahill made an observation about Federer, I think, on ESPN – He said sometimes Federer with quick points and the variety he possesses can tire a player out in like say 40, 45 minutes to a same set that a player would get tired after facing Rafa or Novak in like 60 minutes. And I didn't really understand that, but then I thought about it. What he's trying to say is maybe the change of pace and the start-stop tennis that Federer does puts you off rhythm. But can you explain this better? Does that mean something to you? Because I've held this comment, you know, and I don't know if I mentioned this in the podcast earlier, but I wanted you to explore this further.
1: Yeah, I would think that, of course, I, you know, uh, explanation to that too, if, if you went further, but I would I would assume that what he's, what he's saying is he, he put such uh, pressure, taking the balls early, hugging the baseline and, and, you know, playing quick back to the opponent. And another thing too, Federer played quick between points too. He didn't take, you know, 25, 20 seconds between points. He played quick. So when when he's on top of his game and he's constantly coming at you with a flow of deep ground strokes coming to the net and, and throwing you d- d- a variety of chop shots and, and inside out slices and, and accelerations, you just feel like you're drowning in a, in, in, you know, in under, un, under fire. And, uh, and that's probably what uh, the, 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 the implication that, uh, that Darren was trying to uh, underline. And uh, yes, I can, I can very much understand that because um for example, that was one of the th- that, that's one of the things that Agassiz did well that's that's something that Jimmy Connors did well at the time i had uh, I had a very good friend, Derek Tarr, who was a top 100 ATP player back in the in the eighties, and he said he practiced with Jimmy Connors one time for an hour and he felt more tired than in any match that he played three or four hours before because he said Connors was taking every ball so early and hitting so flat and back to him all the time he felt like he was again hitting against the wall that was sending the ball back harder. And I would think that that's the same um, feeling that, uh, that Darren Cale is trying to convey with someone playing against Federer. And same thing with Agassi. You know, Agassi would take the balls early and just uh, drown the opponent under this constant flow of uh, hard shots, except that Federer was more athletic than Agassi and had more variety than Agassi and, and, and moved better than, than Agassi. And let's keep this in mind too. Um, for people who may not have watched Federer in the early 2000s or even throughout the 2000s who only started watching him, you know, in the 2010s. Um, Federer didn't play necessarily the game that he's playing now or in the last few years early in his career. You know, on clay course, he stayed back and rallied. He he even moonballed at times on clay in in, in, in some of his titles. He played from the baseline. And then if you look at his early Wimbledons, he served and volleyed a lot too. And, uh and, and so you know this is a guy that who can who can put up put forth a variety of games and then later in his career when he got older and uh, he wasn't moving as well anymore and, when, and he needed to cut the points short then he moved in the direction of uh, what kale is describing just hugging the baseline taking the balls early coming to the net flattening out his strokes keeping the points short and he did that well too and uh, that this is why he has uh, many wins over what you would call specialists of a certain, so, certain surface and, uh, and, and he has great wins. Um, so, yes, I mean, the, 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 I, th- I think, the, but, you know, again, I, I widened the discussion a lot, but I think that's what Cahill was, uh, was, was implying oh. when, he, when he said that, you know, just, uh, just I mean- drowning the opponent with a steady flow of, uh, of quick shots, high octane shots coming back at you.
0: No, I think either you're a mind reader, or you know me pretty well, so this is kind of paving for my next question. You should actually do the (laughs) podcast by yourself. You are kind of, you know, getting ahead of the curve. So I think what you just said about uh, someone who hasn't seen Federer 1.0 and then the Federer reinvention, you know, that came in the 2010s. So, and we have to include Rafael Novak because they are like big part of his, you know, trajectory. So you think uh, when a champion like Federer when there's a, he needs to reinvent, and you can probably talk about what changed in his game in the 2010s. You think it's a function of these two guys breathing down his neck, Murray included, or you think it's also like a stubborn champion senses there is maybe slightly the footwork needs to be tinkered or it's not what it used to be? Uh, so wh- what was your observation from far when you saw the change in Federer when he reinvented some strokes and, you know, and then we saw the change which uh, doesn't really get easily absorbed by every eye, but few eyes have to notice it first. And then mere models like us can say, okay, yeah, Merch said it or someone said it. Yeah, oh yeah, Federer's playing a little differently. So talk about the reinvention and talk about what caused it according to you.
1: Oh, I think it I think it does motivate him when, uh, you know, players like Rafa and uh, Novak certainly motivated him to to try to get better. and uh, But the, again, you know, he's got this game where he's, Toolbox is, is full. So he doesn't have to learn something anew. He already knew how to volley or drop shot or, or what have you. So he just needed to put those in order in order to, in order in the right structure so that he could compete with, with these guys coming up behind him or surpassing him. And, um, you know, if you look at, uh, and, and it's not like uh, he has to, I mean, look, take a guy, take a guy like uh, Robin Soderling who, you know, in the late 2000s, before, before he caught mono in the very early 2010, from 2007 to 2011 um, time period, he was, he was very uh, effective. And uh, he, play, he played a great brand of tennis, just really, really powerful striking. Big serve, huge forehand, big backhand. You know, one of these guys that just um, hit the ball and it sounded like a bazooka every time he hit the ball. And then you take their 2009 U.S. Open quarterfinals where Roger Federer wins the first two sets 6-0, 6-3 before Sutterling can, can squeak out the third set 7-6. And then it turned into a very close match in the fourth set and Federer barely pulled, pulled it out 7-6 in the fourth set. But for two sets there, 6-0, 6-3, Roger Federer dominated the court playing the style of game that Robin Sutterling loves to play. He actually out-rallied him, out-powered him, and out, uh, uh, you know, t- t- taking the ball earlier, even earlier, and just out, out-hitting him, which is something hard to do against Söderling. But he did that and um, in that U.S. Open quarterfinals for two sets. Uh, again, you know, you, you look at something like 2006 Wimbledon final in, uh, against Rafa. I mean, he's moving incredibly quick in in, in, in that final. His footwork is just... Outrageous, and so he's able to adapt to any surface, and to any opponent, and in or or 2012 uh, French Open semifinals against Djokovic. You know when he halted the Novak's 43-match uh, winning streak. I believe in 2011 that 11 that he started with. All of a sudden, you're watching a Federer who's who's unbeatable from the baseline. You know he won that match playing clay court style tennis, just aggressive clay court tennis. He didn't serve in volley and come to the net all the time. But from the baseline, he was able to out-rally Novak Djokovic, who was on top of his game, on clay courts, where people claimed that he was, that, that wasn't his best surface. So his adaptability to, to different surfaces is, 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 is great. And this is also a guy that people, people discount this. But uh, in 2014 off-season, at the end of the season, for, in preparation for 2015, he and Stefan Edberg um, focused on coming over the top more on backhand returns, and this is something that I specifically asked in 2015 uh, at Istanbul Open to, to, to Roger. I said, is, "Is this something you guys, you know, you and Stefan and the rest of the team uh, focused on coming over the top on because you because you because this year you've been exclusively almost coming over the top on your backhand returns?" And he said, "Well, yes, actually we did," and he went on to explain a little bit and And then he plays uh later that year he plays Rafa in Basel indoors that he wins in three sets, six three in the third, and in that match he hits sixty one backhand returns and he comes over the top of fifty nine of them, only two of them he sliced back, which was a weakness of him against Rafa for many many years he would block that that return and the Rafa would serve out wide to his back and he'd block the return back, and Rafa would start moving him around and, and playing around so what does he do? He, ch- he changes back to coming over the top. And since 2015, you know that's another thing that 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 that, that doesn't get talked much ab- about. I think he's six and one against Rafa to finish his career since 2015. He lost to him one time in 2019 French Open semifinals, but he beat him on every other. Uh, yeah, he, he so- beat him every other time that he played. and, 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 f- he, and he pulled the same. Let's go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: No, I was going to say five and one. That includes one walkover at Indian Wells in 2019.
1: Okay, so you know, five and extent, one.
0: Yeah, five and one. Yeah, yeah,
1: five and one. So let's go with five and one. And uh, and he um, and you know and 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 when he beat him at Wimbledon in 2019 in the semifinal, same thing. You know, he came over the top with his backhand on his uh, on his returns almost every single time. I think only once he sliced, and it was some something like 30 or 40 times coming over the top. So this is someone who went into great lengths to improve his game, even in the smallest details, you know, in order to do better than what he did. He made this adjustment in 2014, 2015 between seasons, you know, but the, that's when he was already what, 35 years old or uh, I'm not sure, but yep. 34, but uh, yeah. So uh, he definitely tweaked his game. He tweaked his game specifically to beat his main rivals if he can, if he could, but uh but uh, again it all starts with having the having a big toolbox and um so you look at different uh times in his career and he's played different style games on different surfaces against different people and this is the i i think this is the key behind his longe- longevity you know the, the how long he's been in the game at the top of the game his he, he he knew he, he he evolved his game accordingly to the changing times
0: again, from my perspective, you know, very uneducated eye compared to yours and not trying to like flush for any, no, no, not trying to uh, flush for any, you know, compliments, but honestly, you know, I'm a club player at best. So I notice a forehand is different in the second coming of Federer. Do you notice that? And do you sense why it changed? Because the way he was hitting from 2003, 2007, eight, I just feel he was, the forehand, there's something different about it. I mean, I, I'm not just able to describe it in the last 10 years or so.
1: Yeah, I, I would say maybe t- the timing in terms of uh, moving and taking the ball on the rise, but in terms of technique, uh, I don't see much difference personally.
0: You don't? Okay, so the, there you go. Yeah, the, go you mean like?
1: And- I, and I don't know if he's taking the racket back differently. I mean, I, I might have missed it, Sakib. You might have. Oh, some or maybe racket, the players guess, he was so. playing.
0: I mean, you know, if you look at his matches with Roddick and Hewitt, and even the early version of Nadal, there was like a dip in his crosscourt forehand it had more air time. It's, I don't know if that's a tennis term, but in the last eight or nine years, you know, with Edberg and, you know, the struggles with the back, I just think the forehand is, it seems slightly more flatter. I mean, it still has topspin.
1: Yeah, no, it's like, true. That's true. But I don't know if it's if it's technique related or just him simply following through, flatten it out a little bit more on the follow through. But I don't, I'm not sure that he's taking his elbow back any differently or he's, uh, he's looping the forehand back more than he did earlier. I'm not sure about any of those. Um, substantial changes, let's put it that way. I think he's just simply, I, I would agree that he's definitely more aggressive in these later years, yes. And that goes in line with uh, him trying to cut the point short and be more aggressive.
0: So technically, murd is he a throwback talent? Is he someone at, at a coach's corner you can identify and say not many people are playing like this? He becomes more unique. Of course, he's very talented. But in my humble opinion, he learned his tennis watching the Edbergs and Sampras's and you know all those guys. So he's a guy from, who grew up watching the 90s tennis and his longevity kind of, you know, made him a dinosaur. But do you think that style is more relevant today? Are people going to play that style? Uh, um, are people following the more hybrid style, like the pros Marat Safin and all the way Novak Djokovic, taking it to a whole new level of how tennis is played now?
1: Yeah, I would, I would go with the second thing that you said. I think uh, the way Federer plays the game, we're going to see that, or we're seeing that less and less uh simply because he doesn't have, for example he doesn't have an extreme western grip he doesn't have uh he doesn't have a two-handed backhand uh he doesn't rely on heavy top spin and nor should he because he can he can he can do a variety of spins with his shots and um and he's just a more um he's just a his backhand especially i would say his backhand is definitely a throwback but uh, his serve, not necessarily. His forehand, not necessarily, but his technique at the net is a throwback. He's more of a classic volleyer who splits and then, you know, takes the ball in front and tries to perhaps use his wrist a little bit more for touch volleys. And, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, he doesn't do much. He doesn't do much, uh, let's put it this way, swing volleys as much as other players do. But, uh, but, but uh, you know, I'd say mostly his backhand and his uh, volleying and his willingness to come to the net is a bit of a throwback. I don't think his serve is a throwback and I don't think his forehand is necessarily a throwback, but yeah, yeah it's a mixture
0: okay, of So it. So quite the contemporary technique then.
1: On, on some shots, yes, okay. on some shots. I, but when we, let's be careful because when we say contemporary technique, it makes it sound as if a lot of people are trying to play like Federer today. And uh, and you don't see that much, you know. I, in the top 15 guys in the world, I there are more guys playing with two-handed backhands, more topspin, more baseline hard hitting than uh, than someone like Federer. You know, like Dimitrov would be, for example, another uh, somewhat of a throwback type of guy. Even Dominic Team a little bit, but Team also relies on power a lot. Yeah. But uh, you look at most other players, you know, including players, the new players like Sinner and Alcaraz. You know, they're more from the baseline, steady, deep, top spin, very few slices. Yes, Alcaraz does do some drop shots, that's true. But they're more uh, steady and uh, and uh, certainly not old school. All
0: right, so let's deconstruct some of the Federer strokes. We've talked about it many a times on WhatsApp and, you know, like other DMs. Uh, in your tennis watching, where do you rate his forehand? Uh, uh,
1: I would rate his forehand. I'd top say three top, maybe uh, I'd say top, top, five. top five even top 5 in the open era you know the, the, so it's 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 one of the best forehands out
0: there just taking it early makes it uh, more deadly or just
1: taking it early but also you know again in, in his early years on the tour he didn't necessarily move in and take every ball on the rise and early and try to go for winners either so uh, you know he can he can lay back he can lay back and top spin it he can hit angles he can accelerate it down the line and he can also hit a forehand slice. You know, that's, uh, he, he doesn't use it much, but sometimes I have seen him several times where he, um, where he opens his arm like he's going to drop shot the forehand and then all of a sudden lays it deep, you know, extends the forehand slice deep. So he's got, he's, he can do a lot with his forehand.
0: All right, so let's talk about the backhand. A lot goes, you know, into his backhand and the single hand backhand being aesthetically pleasing and all that crap. His backhand has been pretty effective, and you and I have talked about it. So how do you compare his backhand to the other great one-handed backhands of the last decade? Wawrinka, Dominic team I don't know if you want to put Robredo in there, Tommy Haas. Uh, Where do you rank Federer's backhand? And when we talk backhand, does return of serve on backhand also becomes part of that same umbrella, or that's a different stroke?
1: No, it's, it becomes part of that same umbrella because one-handed backhand uh, hitters have a little more trouble returning hard serves than two-handed backhand hitters. That part, that part I'd agree with. But I wouldn't agree with... Uh, uh, I'm not sure that... Okay, among the players that you just counted in terms of one-handed backhand hitters, if uh, what are we talking about? Are we talking about sheer power generation? In that case, yes. Team Wawrinka are ahead of fetter if we're going to talk about that limited scope. But if we're going to talk about how effective your backhand is in general, I'd take Federer's Federer's backhand, one-handed backhand, over almost any other one-handed backhand hitter during his time. And uh, yes, Team can hit a great backhand topspin. He's got a decent slice too. But uh, can he make the drop shot, deep slice, or the cross-court angle slice the same on his backhand? No, you can can tell there's a difference. Federer takes the racket back, and you can't tell if he's going to hit – a sizzling down the line, hard paced backhand slice, or if he's going to drop shot or if he's going to float it up or if he's going to hit an inside out slice. And, uh, or if he's going to hit that, that, that nasty short slice that kind of forces the opponent to bend the knees and move forward and hit it at that dead zone on the court where they don't know if they should just come in behind or get back to the baseline. And, uh, you know, Roger has won many points with that. And, and, um, you know, again, in those matches where he throws, where he changes the pace a lot and he throws the kitchen sink at his opponents, his end is the driving force behind that kind of turnaround in matches that uh, that is put uh, that is put forth. So, you know, even even against Novak, right? Uh, the, the, the Novak, for example, had uh, had trouble with backhand uh, with with uh, Roger's slice. And if you look at a lot of the matches that Roger was successful against Novak, it's those matches where he didn't get into a hard hard hitting rally with Novak back and forth 15 to 16 times cuz he would lose most of them but he's but he but he threw in a lot of backhand slices and junk slices where he made Novak bend down for uh, for his shots and even come inside the court inside the baseline and hit low balls from there and uh you know this is why he's he was actually more successful against Novak than many other players even at Novak's peak if you you know you look at uh, 2014 and 15 seasons of Novak, where he was really playing his best tennis, in my opinion, 2015 into 2016. And uh, and Roger beat him six times. He lost to him many times too. And he lost to him at, at Wimbledon and US Open finals. But he also beat him, I believe, three times in 2014 and three times in 2015. And there were not uh, they were not uh, small matches either. I think it was Cincinnati Masters final or, or a match in the ATP World Tour finals or maybe Dubai final. But the bottom line is, he was able to stay at toe-to-toe. And one of the big reasons was uh, the use of his backhand slice. I think what happened for people to maybe have that image, as if his one-handed backhand is weak, is early in, in his career, the fact that Rafa was able to dominate Roger on clay. And he was able to hit a lot of that heavy top spin up to Roger's backhand and give him trouble, which is which, by the way, Rafa did to a lot of one-handers, you know, forced them to hit that backhand way up high. And uh, and that's how he beat them. And Federer was one of the victims there, but uh, you know, look, if we're gonna call someone's back, backhand weak because he has trouble against the one player who's easily the best ever player on clay course that the, that any human being has ever seen, then let it be that way. So what, you know? But uh, I would not call Roger's backhand. Uh, I, I, I would I would rather take Roger's one-handed backhand over any of the other players that you just mentioned. Being able to change pace goes
0: a long way. Is this shot still taught at the academies, or usually coaches don't tinker with the player's preference of one or two-hand backhands because it seems like an obsolete shot? Like the Stastnypa struggles, you know, uh, are evident that you know he's still finding to make a mark with that backhand. I mean, my in my opinion, it's no liability, but I don't understand the game at that well technically. I think Sitsipas backhand can improve, but he can still create havoc for certain players with the backhand. You know. Well, the, so, di-
1: the the dilemma there, Sakib, is when a kid starts learning to play tennis. How uh, you know when they're four, five, six years old, when they're learning to hit forehands and backhands, hitting a one-handed backhand is just a daunting task. It's just too tough. You're not strong enough it's much easier to grab the racket with two hands and swing at the ball with, the, with two hands. So therefore you learn that way starting. You would have to be a very diligent and very idealistic coach to sit there and force a five-year-old kid to, hit a, to start with a one-handed backhand and then watch the kid struggle with that one-handed backhand until he gets strong enough to, to be able to start doing things with them. And also at the club level or at a junior level to listen to that kid's parents ask you, why did you teach him a one-handed backhand? Everyone's hitting to his backhand, and he can't sustain a rally with it. You know, so that's why you have guys like um, uh, Pete Sampras, who actually had a two-handed backhand until uh, very young in his te- teenage years, and I believe Stefan Edberg did too. You know, so uh, the, 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 you know these guys started out with two hand and then switched to one hand eventually. That that you get uh, sometimes, but but uh, there's a reason why they do it though. You know, it's because they can they can reach more they can change the pace they can control their wrist better also one handed backhand and here's time to hit volleys better too because they have a stronger uh wrist uh, wrist control and they have stronger forearm uh, control but uh yeah this is what you mentioned is more the um the ripple effect of a lot of kids starting with two hands and you know pros or tennis tennis coaches basically letting them be for 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 the right or wrong reasons, that's up to the people to decide. I I mean I, I think it is frustrating for a four or five year old, six year old kid, to try to hit a one handed backhand. I mean, to, you know, it's it's a good way to make the kid actually, after a couple of lessons, say, I don't want to play tennis anymore because that's because it's just so impossible to to get the ball over the net.
0: It's interesting to say that. I mean, I didn't play tennis as a young kid. I started playing maybe when I was twelve. And everyone who I watched on TV, including Indian Ramesh Krishnan to Ivan Lendl and Becker, everybody had a single handed backhand. Yeah. So it was very natural. And my first racket was a wooden racket. And I would slice my way. But again, my yeah, tennis but you didn't know, go anywhere.
1: If you, if, you if, t- if you pick up books from the 1960s, 70s, 50s, tennis books, they straight out teach you how to, how to hit a one handed backhand. That's not even a question. When I first took a lesson,
0: to in the, in the
1: early 70s as as a as a very very young kid there was no question you know they they showed us the grip to the forehand and they showed us that okay with that grip you also hit a backhand you know say same continental grip so that there was one way to, to talk back then and that's how it was and that's why they a lot of people hit that's why Connors and Borg were such oddities hitting two-handed backhands at the time but um uh, but, you know, after a while, you know, once two-handed backhand was discovered and, and top players in the world started using it, then uh, then coaches simply took the easy way out. And I don't say that as a criticism, but you discover that as a young kid, their enthusiasm is at a higher level when they can actually hit the ball over the net. And when you try to teach a five-year-old kid, six-year-old yep. kid a one-handed backhand, it's going to take a long time before they can finally start hitting that ball with consistency back over the net. And do they have the patience for it then, or do you end up making them leave the tennis court and never come back and pick another sport? You know. <laughs> All
0: right. Okay. So, that's, uh, so let's talk about the most important ingredient in professional tennis in the last thirty years: footwork. So where do you rank Federer's footwork in terms of what you've seen? And um, and not to be confused by quickness, right? Footwork is not quickness. It's like how you get to the ball. So just break it down for us
1: yeah quickness is one of the aspects of, of of footwork there's also you know first step explosion um there's also how light you are with um with uh you know get, coming off your toes versus when you're on your back foot etc cetera, etc cetera. but uh, i would put um mid-2000s Federer's footwork up there with any anybody else um I, I know there are some there have been i've seen some incredibly fast guys in um in the open era, you know, Mike, Michael Chank, for example, was super fast. Okay. And uh, a guy like Yannick Noah back in the eighties was uh, tall, but very fast, very athletic, jumped very high with one step. He could cover half of the court. And uh, so I can go on and on counting names from the seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands, and even 2010s. But uh, I would say that 2004, five, six, seven, all the way to 2009, Roger Federer, was super quick on the court and his footwork was something to behold because he actually looked like he wasn't really stepping on the court. He was kind of uh, gliding on the court. And uh, you know, the, the way he would hop down and move to one side or the other or away from the ball when it's coming into his body was super quick and supernatural. It's almost like he saw the ball coming a second and a half in advance and he was already moving in the right direction. I would, I would advise anybody who wants to see Federer's footwork at his, at his peak to, to, watch, to watch any of his matches from 2006 Wimbledon or just simply watch his uh, 2006 Wimbledon final against Rafa. You know, in the, he, won, he wins the first set 6-0 and then the second set goes to a tiebreaker, I believe, and he wins that too, but then Rafa wins the third set and then Roger wins the fourth set. But I would watch that whole match and see how quick he is on the court. He's, he's lightning fast. So I'd put it uh, that time period, two thousands. His footwork in two thousands, I'd put him. I'd put it up there with uh, any other uh, quick player that you can think of.
0: Yeah, I would. I would put him with Guillermo Coria. I think he had incredible footwork too.
1: Coria was ex- extremely fast. Extremely fast. I haven't seen. Borg. could but he I think... cover? Uh, I'll tell you what. Could Coria cover the same ground on his first step on a return like Roger could? I'm not sure. You know. But you're talking about just running for drop shots, running side mm. to side, back and forth to be able to stay in the rally. Korea was second to none, you know but, but you know footwork is not just running down balls and, yeah. and this lateral movement. There's a lot more to it, you know
0: no, and, and for explosive steps, especially on the running forehand, I would also remember young Juan Carlos Ferrero pro uh, prior to chicken pox. I think he was hell of a athlete and I think it's too bad someone is asking me on a space what are the big regrets of the federal legacy and I said for him not having a rivalry with Safin and Ferrero I think those two guys kind of didn't live up to the billing both won majors but I don't think due to injuries and whatever reasons we didn't see the best of Safin and Ferrero for a long time and I think before Nadal entered those two matchups were primed I think for YouTube and you know and the stuff that we continue to talk about, I think we got deprived of those two matchups. But anyway, so Mert, again, w- 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 there's some crazy Federer statistics, right? 23, 36, 237, 18 of 19 slam finals, 10 in a row, then losing a semi to Djokovic, then again, eight in a row. And someone who's, you know, who's been in the sport for so long, these records became mundane with Federer. I mean, you know, it took we took it for granted till. Rafael Novak came and challenged, and you know, then started making their own inroads. What stands out for you? What is a single record or a record or two that you sometimes think, "Wow, you know, we 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 just don't fully appreciate this this streak."
1: How many semifinals did, did he have in a row in the in the in the majors? Didn't he have like something like twenty-one or twenty-two semifinals in a 23. row? Twenty-three. Yes, I mean the 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 consecutive records that he has: five Wimbledon's in a row, five U.S. Opens in a row um you know this this twenty twenty three 23 semifinals in a row and i think he was what 17 finals out of uh 18 18 out of 19 yeah something like that it's, these are just crazy numbers you know the the the, the consecutive ones are are the, because of his continued you know his dominance over not one year but two years but maybe three or more years uh weeks in a row at number one i think he holds that record too uh just you know things of that nature are um the, the way he's able to sustain his form for so long and his dominance for so long uh, over the course of two, three years is probably the most impressive thing that, uh, that anyone can produce. And uh, you know, again, this is why, um, another thing too is Federer is a trailblazer in the true sense. In other words, he's a, uh, again, I'm, I, I come back to this because a lot of the records that he broke, he brought them to levels that nobody previously thought were were were, were possible. You know, when Sampras got 14 majors, nobody thought the, 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 someone would surpass that. He surpassed it by six. I mean, at, at some point, I think he was leading 20, 17, 14. And, you know, he basically allowed others behind him to... Uh, to say that it's possible that they should strive for it and even though some, some of his several of his records are now surpassed by his main rivals Rafa and Novak when he first broke them himself you know he he made he, they were they, he brought them to levels uh, that that were previously thought impossible so he he made what seemed impossible reachable and he, he allowed everyone else to to bring that maybe from a dream, to where they can actually think of it as something they can strive for and accomplish in reality, and uh, you know, the, the, I mean, I'll, I'll ask you earnestly: in the mid two thousands, two thousand five, two thousand six, did anybody believe that a tennis player could win slams past thirty five? I don't think so. Okay, no. I, I, I don't think that that anybody thought that someone could be a top three player, top number one player, or win slams at you know past 34 35 and yet here we are three players one of them already did it but the other two will probably do it too and uh because he he made that possible you know he made that uh he turned that dream he made that uh that idea graduate from a dream to a po- to, to 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 potential reality and and by accomplishing it himself so yeah he was a trailblazer in that uh, in that sense
0: and also like, you know, what gets, not underscored, nothing about Federer gets underscored. I'm sure he's one of the most talked about athletes of our times, but still yes. I think with his beauty and all this, you know, ballerina like skills and movement, I think, uh, it's kind of ironic that he goes out on an injury on his right knee. And he, that had to be surgically operated three times, which kind of underscores like what it took to play 23 years on the trot in a physically demanding sport, right. That, uh, uh, so much work that goes into it, right. To get ready for the season, just because, you know, uh, he's, you know, all, all the commercials are marketing him in, a, in in some way that, you know, oh, he's, Swiss, he's that he's perfect. No, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And, and since you are from tennis, you kind of know, like, you know, the kind of work you do with your charges, how hard it is to maintain that kind of a long career.
1: Yeah. He, he one of, one of the uh, great things about his, uh, his career is that he had the steady, few steady people around him at all times, and they were very good at their job. Starting with uh, Pierre Paganini, I'm sure, who, who was his uh, fitness trainer for you know who who has been in fit his fitness trainer for a long time, and in terms of prevention, recovery, preparation, obviously he's done all the right things to make his career this long, and it's really too bad that uh, that he's going out this way because like you said you know he, he until several years ago you would you would think that uh, injury would be the last thing that would force him out that he'd go out in his own his own terms even at, maybe after he won a big tournament etc but yet he goes out this way but that that doesn't that that by no means lessens his uh, his uh, how sage he was in managing his body in his career in order to make it last this long at a top level. All
0: right, Mertz. I'm going to keep you for maybe five more minutes. I know we are into the fifth set tiebreak here. We're going uh-huh. on and on. So I want to give you the floor. Uh, what are some of the best rivalries and matches that you've enjoyed? Of course, Rafa Novak at the top. What are some of the federal matches that will stay with you uh, just for pure tennis and what competition that also was part of it it could be Agassi, it could be his match with Safin, it could be these two guys, it could be Murray. What was yeah, the most you, you, uh, most captivating experience? No,
1: yeah, no, no, you you got it. You uh, the, the one that you just mentioned, the one with Safin uh, in 2005 was an incredible match. Uh, really, uh, I mean, it was a really su- superb level. I, I could watch that match today from point one to, to the last point and enjoy every bit of as much as I enjoyed it at the when I first watched it. and it also stands out as a big sore spot for, for Roger right because he had a, he had a match point and he should have won that uh, match and the Australian Open that year. but he didn't. So that match stands out because of the quality of the sheer quality of the match due the to 2008 sem- final, uh, the 2008 final at Wimbledon against uh, Rafa stands out because uh, because it's one of the greatest matches in the, in the history in the history of, uh, of the game, especially in the open era. Uh, he played uh, many other matches, but the, the 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 one that he played against Rafa in Rome, two thousand six, which I think it was one of the turning points in his rivalry with Rafa. You know that match, uh, had it gone the other way, had Roger Federer capitalized on the two match points that he had after at that five hour encounter, and beat Rafa in the fifth set. I think we would have seen a different story at the French Open that year, or maybe you know in the in the years to come later. And he was working with Tony Roach, I believe, that year. And uh, he was really uh, playing his best tennis. And, uh, and uh, I think that, that halted him a little bit against Rafa, specifically for that rivalry. So that's a great match. But uh, you asked, you know, matches that were not against Rafa or uh, Novak. So I would, again, I'd go back to that match against Wawrinka for the reasons that I mentioned in the ATP World Tour Finals. I'd go to that match against Soderling in the 2009 U.S. Open quarterfinals for the reasons that I mentioned, because he, be, he outclassed Soderling by far at Sauterling's best game. You know, and uh, you, you, you would think that nobody would be able to just out hit Sauterling um, on hard courts. And yet here he is, he, he really floored him for two sets. And also you have to mention the 2009 quarterfinal and semifinal as a package at the French Open after, he, after Rafa lost, Rafa lost to Söderling, and he had to play Tommy Haas after that, after knowing that Rafa lost. And uh, he was down two sets and uh, in, a, in a break point, and he pulls that forehand inside out that some people call the most important shot of his career. Okay, maybe that's dramatic, but he saves that uh, break and then comes back to 4-0, wins the third, fourth, and fifth sets. Then he goes in semifinals and plays a very painful match against um, Del Potro. Where he goes down two sets to one, and he wins the fifth set six four, and uh, but then in the finals he you know he he played well and beat uh, Soderling. But those two matches as a package, you know, the Tommy Haas and uh, Juan Martín Del Potro. Um, what are some of the 2017 Australian Open final against Rafa for what it stood for? For what it stood for, because it not only brought brought him back to winning a slam after five years, but it also brought him back from the brink of uh uh retirement, or, or let's put it this way, retirement in the eyes of the public. You know, everybody was counting him out. And he comes back and wins that match. It was the first time he beat Rafa in a long time in a slam. And uh that was, the match wasn't that great, to be honest with you, but the fifth set was was phenomenal. In the last five games was maybe the best five games in a row of Roger's career and and then but he backed it up right in 2017 he backed that up with uh with a with a tremendous season beating Rafa multiple times in that year and um uh, and grabbing the number one spot so those are the matches that come to my mind other than the uh, other than the big uh, you know you, again i i slid into a Roger rafa match again but uh i know you want to know more about other matches but those are the ones that come to my mind yeah, but I'm sure he's great the one thing that I'd like to say, though, his greatest uh, his greatest quality, I think, as a as a player, is his ability to adapt. His capacity for his adaptability. Let's put it this way: he could adapt to different surfaces. He adapted to changing game styles over the course of his career. He adapted to becoming a celebrity. You know, early in his career, he was. Many people will tell you, even his contemporaries and juniors that he was he was a little bit of a hothead on the court uh, he broke rackets but then also he went through that period as a youngster where he was a little bit uh, awkward in interviews he had the you know he had his hair painted uh, yellow or, or or silver and so and then but then he becomes a celebrity he get, he becomes number 1 and he gets into that elite image and he adapted himself well to that image he he all of a sudden exuded class and respect and he adapted well to his changing environment even though he was now the top player that everybody wanted to be around he still remained courteous and humble quite frankly with his peers and journalists there are many stories of him you know treating journalists very well or or giving everyone their due and um and uh, also players. Players loved him because uh, he was very humble with the players. So he adapted to that well. He adapted to different uh, uh, environments. The playing a night match at U.S. Open is completely different than playing a, you know, day match at uh, Suzanne Langland at uh, two o'clock in the afternoon. He, you know, he was able to play in, in different environments. He adapted to a lot of different coaches with different personalities. I and mean, Paul Anikon, Ivan Ljubicic. Uh, um, Tony Roach and Stephan Peter Edbert. Lundgren, Peter Lundgren are different people. You know, there's. <laughs> we're talking about a, a wide plethora of uh, of personalities to work with, and yeah, Stefan Edberg, you know, is another one. And yet he's uh, he did that. So uh, yeah, he's. I mean, his that da- his adaptability, he the way the way he adapted to tough losses, uh, is 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 just great. You know, he's uh, he's a people's person too. Making, you know, making people around them feel like anybody who goes and practiced with them during the off season or preseason in the, in the Dubai, for example, always came back super satisfied. All these youngsters, they said he, he treated us like one of the one of us. He was very pleasant to be around in the locker room. He's well liked by everybody. I can tell you a story. Uh, John Uner, who now sadly passed away, who was coach of Marcel Ilhan and and Çalabük, actually, a Turkish coach. And, uh, the first time in 2011, when, when his player Marcel entered the top 100, the first Turkish male player to do so. And he got in, he, and Federer practice, scheduled a practice with him for an hour and they practiced. And at the end of practice, John, the coach started talking to Roger about soccer, which by the way, is a big interest point for, for Federer. He loves talking about soccer or European football, let's put it this way. And, um, uh, And they talked about uh, his favorite team, Basel. And uh, they talked about this and that. And John, and then the next, for the next year or so, every time Roger saw John, he he would come up. John said, you know, he didn't want to bother him just because he talked to him one time. He felt like he didn't want to, you know, violate his face and go up and say hello to him. But no, actually, Roger apparently came to him and said every time, hey, how's your team going? You know, we, we may play each other at the European League, Champions League. Let's see what happens this year. And then he would laugh. And, you know, we're talking about a guy who coaches a player who just ran the top 100 for the first time from a country that many people haven't even known a tennis player from. And yet here's Roger taking the time to stop and talk to him just because they talked oh. once or twice and he enjoyed the conversation. And, um, and that, that's why he's, uh, he was very popular in the locker room, too.
0: So Mert, we've talked about many seasons of Federer's greatness. You know, the three slam season 2017. And you and I were talking about the season that gets lost in the conversation is 2005. When he won yes. 81 out of 85 matches. And the other day, you and I were part of a Twitter thread when I dragged you in comparing Borg and Nadal season. And you said, you know, some of the two slam seasons are as good as three slam seasons because winning a full slam or three slams was logistically very different challenge in a different era. So where would you put 81 4 season where Federer lost crazy match points to Safin and then lost to Nadal in the semis in French. Otherwise, you know, you know, and that to me, that's still uh, one of the top five six seasons of all time. But how do you want to weigh on it?
1: Uh, we still have to call that one of his worst seasons, sake, because he lost to Richard Gasquet, to, him, to whom you know. he's never <laughs> lost. <after. laughs> one of his four losses is to Gasquet. At uh, at Monte Carlo, and I think he's what I'm just throwing up numbers here. He's 24 and zero in sets since then against Gasquet. No, Ga- but, Gasquet uh,
0: beat him one more time in Rome, actually.
1: Oh, he did. Okay, all right. Well, I'll take that yeah. back. But uh, of course, Gasquet is a terrific player. I'm just you know making a joke for for the sake of uh, for the sake of laughter. But um, no, that's uh, that that 2005 season gets lost in the shuffle because of 2006 season. And um, 2005 season is, is tremendous. And also because because of, uh, in the prism of, uh, you know, today's values, because number of majors count for so much, the fact that he just won two majors only that year automatically discounts it in the eyes of many. But uh, yeah, there's absolutely no reason why 2005 season should not be considered a terrific season. You know, if we're talking about the best seasons of all times, in the open air, at least. Of course, McEnroe's 1984 comes to mind and so forth. And Novak's 2011 or 2016. Or, or uh, you know, we can go on and on and on with, uh, with you know, Roger's 2006 season. But uh, if, if we want to dig under the top level and look at the details, the 2005 season would have to be in the top uh, six or seven best seasons of all times also.
0: For, and the, and for, it took two crazy yeah. matches by Nalbandian and Safin to get those two wins. Nalbandian at the year end finals and Safin in Australia. Otherwise yeah. that could have he, been a wasn't Martina.
1: He, wasn't he up two sets to love against Nalbandian and then he lost in the fifth set tiebreaker or something like that? I think
0: so. I think so. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah.
0: He had come back from an injury. I think he hadn't played much after the U S open. I think that year. Yeah. So anyway, so Murd, let's conclude this. I know you have a famous story that you told our friends in the uh, WhatsApp and DM group. where once you were traveling with a bunch of, I think journalists during Wimbledon and you have a great Federer story. Yeah. I want the listeners to know, and that could be the ending point of this conversation as we continue to celebrate. Oh, Federer. no.
1: The, yeah. <laughs> okay. I remember that. This goes back to Federer being a people's person, right. And, uh, and, the, and caring about what you, um, what you talked about. And, you know, this reminds me, by the way, uh, there's one of the previous American presidents, Bill Clinton, people, you know, people used to say that Bill Clinton has the, had this, uh, Ability, like when he talked to a crowd, that everyone in the crowd would feel like they're actually in, a, in his living room talking to him, you know, face to face, because he, he was he was able he was able to be that personable. Of course, there we're talking about a politician, but listen, but but Federer apparently has this uh, ability where you know he makes people that he's talking to feel genuinely valued, and uh, and it's not an act with Federer. He's really interested in in, in people. He. Mm-hmm. He genuinely wants to know what your interests are, if he's talking to you and everything. And, and he also uh, tries to give everyone their due. And what what I did, what I heard was, uh, it was one in the mid 2000, I don't know, I can't remember if it was 2014, 15, 16 or 13, uh, when I was writing for a, for a media publication and I had, uh, you know, I came, I went in as media and we were, you know, there's transportation back and forth from the hotel to the site. And at night when we're going back to the hotel and I got in, in the, in a car with, um, uh, with four French speaking people. The three of them were French journalists. One of them was Swiss, or it was two and two. I can't remember, but they were talking in French. And, you know, I speak French, but I, I just didn't, didn't did, I didn't want to intrigue the conversation. So I, I guess they thought I didn't understand anything, but anyway, they're, they're talking. And the, one of the Swiss journalists, uh, who is not a regular, by the way, he, he was there, but, uh, It was not someone who. It was not one of the Swiss journalists who regularly covered Wimbledon. And um, on the way back, he says this story about him, you know, seeing Federer for the first time in another tournament. I can't remember where. I think it was Kstad, maybe, but I can't remember. Anyway, he uh, he was talking about how Federer was 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 inundated with journalists wanting to ask him a question. It was one of these situations where the player comes off the court and stands up and answers question, and there were seven or eight people. And apparently, he not being a regular journalist, didn't have a, you know, personal rapport with Federer. So he was left behind. He kept on trying to get in a question and he could never do it. And, and Federer noticed him. And, you know, he kind of like, at towards the end he kind of motioned to him like one minute or I'll get to you or something like that. And then he moved off. And, um, and the guy said, you know, you know, I, I basically got brushed off. I never thought he'd get back to me. I thought he won't even remember who I am. He told me to hang on, but then you know went in, and it and then later on he finds out Federer finds out who that per, journalist is, yeah finds his name, finds out where he is in the hotel and contacts him and says come down to the lobby and I'll talk to you, you know so Amazing. so and 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 the guy the guy apparently talked to him for for uh, for a good five or ten minutes and one on one, you know and I mean who does that honestly who who would do that you know and and we're talking about the most famous player in the world or the number one player in the world at that time the most revered you know men's tennis personality in the world doing that taking the time to do that you know it's uh so yeah he was a people's person that's why he was very well liked by his peers and 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 everyone else there were very few exceptions who, who didn't like him you know the most people really who have been around him liked him a lot
0: all right, on that note, I think we can conclude this conversation. I got almost everything I wanted, even more anecdotes and, you know, your your views and your analysis on Federer. And thank you, Murd, and thank you for every to everyone who's been listening and supporting this podcast. We're going to be more regular at this forum as I try to make my own comeback here after taking a few months off. And, uh, yeah, let's enjoy whatever's left of this weekend uh, to continue to celebrate and pay a tribute to the great man, Roger Federer. And Mert, I'll probably drag you back from the road to do another podcast in a couple of months. Uh, Have a good night, whatever time it is, and get ready for a coaching gig.
1: All right, take care.